Coming up, ruling elites, repressive regimes, and the dangers of being an investigative reporter. That morning, Miranda comes down to the hotel breakfast, and she said, Samati was murdered. And it wasn't anything like, you know, James Bond, anything. You say that. You say that, but it sounds a lot like it. <laughs> you know, people think, well, I don't really care what's going on in Azerbaijan or I don't really care what's going on in Russia. They have their own country to run. Why does it concern me? But what we've seen from investigations like this is first that the, the West is the enabler of the corruption. The big competitive advantage that the UK has over the United States, which is its real only other competitor in terms of financial services, is that we don't have the FBI in Britain. So your money is safe here. It's very, very, very unlikely to be investigated. My name is Nick Wallace, and this is Dirty Deeds, Tales of Global Crime and Corruption, a podcast from the Global Journalism Network, the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, or OCCRP, as it's known. This episode is about the work of two OCCRP reporters, editor-in-chief Miranda Petrusic and Ilya Lazovsky, who produced an extraordinary investigation in October 2021 about the offshore wealth of Azerbaijan's ruling elite. We go behind the scenes to learn more about what it takes to be an investigative journalist. Later, I chat with Oliver Bullo, author of the book Moneyland, about Britain's unique role in the global criminal economy. But first, let's get to how it all started for Miranda and Ilya. Miranda, tell me about your interest in Azerbaijan. So my interest actually came through knowing um, Hadija Ismailova. She is a well-known Azerbaijani, probably the most well-known Azerbaijani journalist. Um, she was my friend. You know, we were very close. And at the time when I got involved in reporting about Azerbaijan, she was facing threats. You know, the government was... The government has planted a camera inside her home, filmed her into intimate situation, you know, released that publicly. She was facing threats, pressures to stop reporting, and actually a criminal prosecution. So she was aware that she might be arrested. Um, this was a time when government was conducting a wide crackdown on media in Azerbaijan in 2012. And before she was arrested, she came to several of us and she basically said, if I'm jailed, please continue my reporting. Basically, she was arrested, uh, later convicted to five years in prison. When she was in jail, obviously, I had I felt a you know a personal duty to a friend. Now, I understand your friend Khadija was released in 2016, but has since been the subject of a travel ban and so is unable to leave the country. She's now working as editor-in-chief of Toplam TV, an independent media outlet in Azerbaijan. And Miranda, you've become something of an expert in Azerbaijani affairs. Give us an idiot's guide to the country. So, <laughs> a crash course in Azerbaijan. Um, Azerbaijan is a country in the Caucasus region. It is situated by the Caspian Sea. Its neighbours are Georgia and Armenia and Iran. It has and it's a, very, a former Soviet state, isn't it? It is a former Soviet state. And actually, the ruling family comes from that time. You know, the Heydar Aliyev, the father of the current president, Ilham Aliyev, basically got in power after the collapse of Soviet Union. And he has been, you know, the family has been ruling the country ever since then. It is an oil-rich country. It should be like a Norway of the Caspian. 
um, you know, it, it should be very rich and a lot of money in the country is spent on the appearance. So a lot of modern buildings are built in Baku. A lot of mo that money has been looted and, and stolen by the ruling elite. Where does Azerbaijan sit on the international stage? So they're pretty, Aliyev is pretty keen to present himself as an ally to the West. He, off, he has this way of selling the, you know, it's a largely Muslim country and oil rich, but he takes care to present it like, we're not like those other bad oil rich Muslim countries. You know, we're modern. We are, you know, look at our capital city. We're friends with Israel. We're moderate. We're part of the world. We're, we're selling oil. So he, there's a lot of stories in the US and in Western Europe of sort of various projects and nonprofit organizations and that present the country in as positive a light as possible, even though at home, you know, the few journalists who are brave enough, like Khadija, to stay there and not to flee end up being imprisoned or worse. So it's a really one of the most horrific dictatorships in the world, probably, without being often recognized as such because it kind of tries to present a pretty nice image. And even before I joined OCCRP, I was doing stories about Khadija and her imprisonment and about this kind of law image laundering campaign. When you first started working together, was it inside the OCCRP or did you know each other from before then? Uh, we met at OCCRP. Uh, Miranda has been there since pretty much the beginning. I joined about five and a half years ago. And that's when, um, that's when we met. And I think initially I was more of a kind of a coordinating editor. We didn't work too much together right away. But then once I started editing stories a lot more, I think our first big one, Miranda, was... Kazakhstan, right? Yes, we were looking into a former minister of oil in Kazakhstan. I was I was captured by Ilya's narrative and the way he writes. I thought it was really it makes the story really beautiful. I'm more on the reporting side, so I I care about the facts. I care about you know going deep, tracking down money, figuring out what person is up to. But I'm not so much of a writer. So for me, like, I saw how beautiful writer he is, and I felt we needed to work together. So that was the first project where we worked together. And have you worked together regularly since? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we work together all the time. Uh, that project was the first one where really I was so floored by Miranda's command of all the documents and understanding the technical documents and corporate documents and offshore documents and all the stuff that underlaid that story. But I kept trying to get out of her, you know, I don't understand what is the narrative we're putting together from this. And we just kept, I wouldn't say fighting, but you know, we had a lot of like very passionate discussion about it until that story came together. And we were like, wow, this worked really well, where our very kind of different skill sets came together to make that story really work. And then after that, we worked together a few more times. And then we had one big adventure involving Central Asia, which is a, re a region that Miranda focuses on, and I now do too with her, where we had a story involving a source who was uh, murdered in the middle of our investigation, and we found ourselves... That's a whole separate story, but we found ourselves in no, a really... No, no, well, okay. tell me more. I mean, that that's a... <laughs> I mean, a horrible situation to be yeah. in. What, what, so, what, what was the context it, and, and, and where exactly were you? Miranda and I were, work, were partnering with Radio Free Europe, who are based in Prague, and we were working on a story about smuggling in Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. And we went to Prague together to just work with our partners at Radio Free Europe. We were working with another editor there and several reporters, and it was just going to be a trip, I think, for one or two days just to kind of meet with them and outline the stories and kind of get started on writing maybe. And then that morning, Miranda comes down to the hotel breakfast 
where I'm having breakfast and she said, Samati was murdered. And Samati was a this Uyghur guy who uh, born in China, but working in Central Asia, who was the kind of the money launderer for this family. And he had come clean and given us a lot of documents, you know, piles and piles of documents attesting to all this laundering. And his documents were basically the main source for this investigation. And then it turned out he had been shot and killed in Istanbul. And we were just like, oh my God, what is going on with this story? And we knew that, you know, obviously the safety issue had just been heightened by a million times because who knows if we didn't know who had killed him or why or what, but we were afraid it had something to do with our story and that maybe the, the, they would come after our reporters next. We weren't personally feeling in any danger really in Prague, but we had a lot of reporters who were working on this who were much more exposed. So we knew we had to publish as soon as possible. That's kind of the main principle in these one of the main principle in these safety situations is you want to the most dangerous period is when you're about to publish because that's when they can still stop you. So yeah. if you're in danger, you try to publish as soon as possible. But the story wasn't really anywhere near ready. So our one day trip to Prague turned into, I think, th two or three weeks, two and a half weeks yeah. of just round the clock, day and night, doing the reporting, outlining the stories, writing the stories, rewriting, editing, fact checking everything to get them out. And it was just probably one of the most intense journalistic times of my life. But Miranda and I, we had worked together before on several projects by this point. So we knew each other well. I think we worked together quite well, but we had never been in this kind of pressure before together. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely the most insane um, two and a half weeks we ever had. And it was insane for a few reasons. One was we had to deal with a lot of stress. You know, the source who was killed, everybody was traumatized by, by just that fact and obviously we were facing a lot of issues back in Central Asia with some threats. Many people will be fascinated by a situation that you're in where you are in some kind of danger, not necessarily immediate mortal danger, but your contacts and your colleagues may be in danger. How do you ensure what you are doing is safe? So what do you do when you uh, are potentially aware that you're reporters are operating in red zones and may need to be got out very quickly or at least need some protection or to go into hiding? I mean, part of it is, you know, we try first to prevent a situation like this to happen. So for the longest of the time, we actually try to work in silence. Uh, you know, we, we plan out every step. We plan out when we are going to reach out to who, who we are going to contact. And we try to limit the number of people who are aware of the investigation in the first place. In this case, what happened is, you know, the source was killed. So we had to change everything around. And, and part of it meant basically we needed to get everybody in the safe place. So we had the specific procedures for the reporters of, you know, not walking home alone, basically making sure somebody escorts them. In one case, reporter actually did not leave their newsroom for a few days and basically slept inside the newsroom because that was the safest thing to do. For us, it was obviously working as fast as we can, but at the same time, you really need to worry about the facts and making sure that everything is, you know, if, you, if you're concerned about the story being correct in normal circumstances, in these circumstances, that's even more important because you already have somebody out there who is very angry about what's going on. You don't want to make a mistake and make them even more angry. So they go after other reporters and try to physically harm them. And then part of it is the way... We, we plan out for rights of replies. You want to make sure that you send them at the very last minute possible when the story is ready to be published and you're just waiting for them to respond to, you know, during a very short period of time. So you're basically minimizing 
the amount of time that people have to act. And then you're trying to make it seem that there is a lot more people who are involved in the project in order to confuse and, 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 and kind of like a dilute number of targets. Do you have conversations about how to keep communication secure and to ensure that information or communications doesn't get tapped into or leaked or go missing? I mean, we normally use uh, uh, an app called Signal. It's a, an app which provides encrypted conversation. And what we do is we basically, you know, make the messages disappear within a very short period of time. At the same time, we also sometimes like just walk outside the office and speak. So this way we kind of like try to keep the conversations far from any ears that might want to hear about it. But like most of it is is really keeping the number of people who are aware of what's coming to a minimum. And, and do you ever consider personal security? Because I, I work in broadcast news and obviously we are very obvious targets when we're carrying around big cameras. So security in, in dangerous areas is, is a given. But I imagine if you're a journalist working alone, that security can often attract attention because it, it, they're normally pretty obvious themselves, aren't they? The way we work, I mean, we we try to make it not obvious. You know, I mentioned that we, one of our reporters met with this source, this money launderer who had given up the documents. And he, actually, we were trying to get him to give us some more documents because we were missing a few crucial pieces. So we arranged a meeting in Istanbul. Our main security concern there was just making sure that our reporter wasn't being observed by someone else because we didn't really know this guy well or, you know, necessarily trust him or even if his intentions were 100% benign towards us. We never know if he's being followed or if someone is after him. And of course, it ended up that someone was after him. So we um, sat off to the side and, you know, drank some nice coffee at this really fancy um, hotel bar and kind of just observed. But it was like very quiet. You know, if you were there, you wouldn't have noticed. It was just two people having coffee. We, it wasn't anything kind of I guess it was clandestine. It wasn't anything like James Bond, anything. It was very calm, kind of, on the surface. You say that. You say that, <laughs> but it sounds a lot like it. <laughs> okay, so you've got this journalistic interest in Azerbaijan and the Aliyev family, and then suddenly the Pandora Papers arrive. What happened next? Uh, Pandora Paper was uh, the huge leak that was obtained by the... Um, uh, international Consortium of Investigative Journalists and shared with OCCRP and a number of other news organizations in the world. Basically, what it had is data from 14 offshore service providers. So basically, these law firms who are, who are helping people like members of Aliyah family establish secretive companies in different jurisdictions around the world. So obviously for me, you know, as soon as I got access to this leak, you know, the first thing to do was to search Aliyev. And, you know, the moment I hit the search button, we got hundreds of hits with uh, Aliyev's name. From then on, we basically started compiling a long list of offshore companies in which they showed up either as a shareholders or in some cases, even directors. And then, um, you know, started looking into each of these. And Miranda had this crazy spreadsheet of, um, you know, because these companies are so difficult to trace. And I think we ended up with 84 companies in this story that kind of looked like they were functioning as a system. And so you had to trace 
the shareholders, you know, the Aliyev family or a few of their associates, but also how the companies work together and how sometimes all the directors will change at the same time of a certain group. Or there will be certain transactions that you can trace from company to company. And I remember looking at this crazy spreadsheet that Miranda had put together of these companies and each one's director and shareholder and where it was incorporated and how some properties were handed off from company to company, sometimes multiple times. And this is where Miranda really is like probably among the best in the world at figuring out these systems and really systematically figuring out what these companies are doing. And then we come together and then we start the challenges how do you turn this into a narrative that's interesting for readers? And so then that was a lot, a lot of work. It, well, it was it was a very successful article, but and I, I'd, I'd love to see the spreadsheet, although I probably wouldn't <laughs> understand it as much as the finished piece. But what you were able to establish is that the Aliyev family were beneficial owners of more than $600 million worth of property in central London, which is a staggering figure. I mean, I presume the whole point of having the, this Byzantine web of offshore companies is to disguise the fact that they have so much wealth invested in in central London. But what is the assumption about how they have come by that wealth in order to be able to own these properties? That's a great question. We, in most cases, we don't know. We what we know is that that wealth does not correspond to their official income. So if you look at Ilham Aliyev, before he was president, when he was the son of the previous president, he worked as at Sokar, the national oil company. So, you know, he had a salary there and now he makes a salary as president. And if you add up all the different official sort of declared sources of income of him and his family, it doesn't come close to explaining hundreds of millions of dollars of property. So mostly we don't see where the money is coming from and it probably has something to do with their fellow elites in the country. Um, It's kind of a crony system, you know, where if you are an associate or ally or friend of the president and you're a businessman, you know, somehow some of the money trickles over. What we did find is that a few of these offshores received money from some of the laundromat systems that we had previously discovered. A laundromat is, you know, it's a system for disguising the origin of money. And mostly these laundromats are in some cases interconnected, but they're systems of dozens and dozens of companies and they each of the companies have bank accounts and they usually pick some sketchy bank to have their account at which doesn't do a lot of checks on the money and you see the money we you know when we have leaks of the bank transfers we can see the money entering the laundromat and then being split and then sent to this company that company that company and then from those companies to another and those to another and then eventually comes out the other end and by that time it has gone through you know four or five or six or more transactions, which has completely obliterated any trace of where it came from. And all those transactions we can see are essentially fraudulent because when you see the, every time there's a bank transaction, you have to indicate the reason for the transaction. And the reasons listed for these transactions are pretty obviously fraudulent because it's stuff like purchase of mechanical equipment, purchase of computer equipment, whatever, by from one shell company to another shell company on different different jurisdictions, secret jurisdictions around the world. These are obviously not companies that are really trading in any of these goods. And we'll see other evidence too that the transactions are fake, including a bank account will be empty and then a bunch of money will enter that account and then the same amount will leave the next day. So it's not a bank account that really holds money for a company like a normal bank account. It's just clearly just used as a sort of transit point for the money. So that's why even if even when we do have access to some of these leaks or some secret whistleblower or some source to look at the internal mechanisms of these systems, we still can't often figure out where the money came from. 
But in the case of these Aliyev companies that were owning property in London, in a few cases, we did see money entering those companies from these laundromats. So it, again, it doesn't really tell us the origin, you know, whether it was oil money or some corrupt scheme in the tax ministry or whatever it could have been. We don't really know the origin, but we do know that it entered these companies through this extremely sketchy system, the whole purpose of which is to disguise the origin of the money. In earlier investigations, we have uncovered that the family owned few properties in London, but nothing to the scale. It was interesting because, you know, we just assumed that when they were buying properties in London, they were basically buying a real estate that they would want to live in when they spend, when they're spending time there. We did not really know that they are engaged in commercial activities in London. And some of these properties were really high-end developments. So that was kind of like a, a, kind of like realizing that actually they have a business in mind and they actually have an interesting operation in mind in addition to basically buying uh, properties where they can um, live in. My favorite example is this. Miranda mentioned that they don't just own penthouses to live in. And one of them is a building on Maddox Street in Mayfair in London, which hosted a restaurant with two Michelin stars, an art gallery, and the headquarters of Condé Nast. I should say the building was acquired by an offshore company that belonged to one of the family's associates. And then it was transferred to the 11-year-old son of the president, Haydar. So when he was 11, he got this building that was worth many millions, of dozens of millions of dollars. He owned it for seven years. And then the company transferred back to Kamilov, the associate. And then eventually it was transferred offshore and sold and they made a big profit. So for seven years, this building was owned by an 11, you know, a boy, essentially, not even a teenager. Now you have established the beneficial owners of all these properties as the Aliyev family in, in Azerbaijan. And I think the worst that you can say at the moment about them is that it is both interesting and suspicious how they have acquired this, this fortune. What do you want to see happen now? You've, you've laid out this incredibly intricate jigsaw. What, what needs to now happen for people to be able to properly investigate how they came by the wealth which allowed them to amass this kind of fortune? In ideal world, we would see all the banking transactions so we can see exactly who paid the money and when and how. But that requires um, a much more transparency than I think government at the time being are willing to offer. But that's that's basically what you really need. I mean, we need there needs to be a mechanism to force the Leo family to disclose where did they get the money to basically acquire these properties. Is that on the governments of the West to say to the banks and the companies in the British Virgin Islands, you've got to be more transparent about the way you are trading with people in, in these other states because we don't know how they're getting their wealth and it may not be through legal means. Yes, because, you know, the way that the, today's corruption works is that, you know, people think, well, I don't really care what's going on in Azerbaijan or I don't really care what's going on in Russia. They have their own country to run. Why does it concern me? But what we've seen from investigations like this is first that the the West is the enabler of the corruption in those parts of the world, but also that the corruption ultimately comes to the countries which enable it. Because, you know, in order to have these massive properties in London, the Aliyah family is paying lawyers, property developers, and so on, to basically help them in this. 
And the cost is ultimately paid by the people of London, you know, the people who live there and cannot afford these properties anymore because, you know, the Aliyev ruling family has incredible pool of money available to them that they can just take from and basically pay for anything they want, while regular people cannot. We see that, you know, the offshore jurisdictions, every party that plays a role in this kind of system um, basically is doing it for a cut in the profit while at the same time inflicting a huge suffering both on the local people in the West, but also people in Azerbaijan. You are in Azerbaijan, whether you're the president or just some oligarch, or whether you're in Russia or any other corrupt country, if you've managed to amass a fortune through corruption or crime or just through political connections, you don't want to keep your fortune in that country because the rule of law is weak. You know, someone could take it back from you. Who knows what could happen? So you see that in the West, you have strong rule of law. You have courts that actually function. You have armies of lawyers and real estate developers. And it's just a perfect place to take your money, pull it out of the country where you, whose people you robbed and put it into London or New York or Miami or wherever, and then you'll be safe. And I just think that, you know, clearly the Western world should not be using its achievements in the rule of law to launder the money of some of the worst people in the world. So I think if we care about how our politics and policies affect, you know, some of the least fortunate people in the world, these are things we should be looking at. Does it frustrate you that it is left to journalists to do the sort of work you are doing, the detective work to put together the beneficial ownership, the connections between uh, the wealth of foreign states and, and where they own property? Because surely this should be something that the authorities with their resources should be looking into. It is frustrating because, you know, what we don't see is, you know, in our own little bubbles, it's easy to kind of like feel happy and you know think of we have a good life everything is nice but globally the world is poor there's so many millions of people who are suffering exactly because of the corruption and we don't always see the suffering and you know we don't see what these countries could be if their uh, ruling elites were not stealing as much as they are stealing tracking down these transactions figuring out who is behind the offshore companies it it it, it should be done by the governments my thanks to Miranda Petrusic, the OCCRP's editor-in-chief, and Ilya Lazowski, an OCCRP senior editor. Now, when I asked who might make an interesting guest for this episode, Ilya immediately suggested Oliver Bullough, a British author who's written a number of superb books, including Moneyland and his latest, Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals. Both books describe how money is looted by corrupt elites from the countries they rule, is then washed through banks and anonymous shell companies, and then used to buy assets in the West. I started by asking Oliver if he believes the Aliyevs have aped the Russian oligarch model. I don't know if I'd say they've aped the model, but there's no doubt that their money has followed exactly the same patterns as that of the Russian oligarchs, or indeed the oligarchs of I think all of the former Soviet states, they're clearly essentially finding the same advisors or if not the same advisors, advisors who are offering them exactly the same solutions to move their money through the same jurisdictions, to hide it behind the same kind of shell companies, to invest it in the same kind of assets. And I think interestingly also for their children to end up doing similar things. There's this weird pattern whereby, you know, very hard-nosed exponents of real politic in former Soviet 
republics like Azerbaijan or Russia or Ukraine or wherever always seem to end up with children engaged in, you know, media, the arts, uh, publishing. It's very strange. It seems to be a, a, a generational shift that's very hard for any, anyone to do anything about. Yes, and that also links into the way that respectability can be bought uh, with this kind of money, can't it? If you become a patron of the arts uh, as well as working within them, then British society in particular seems to, to welcome your money and your influence rather more readily than perhaps it should. I'm always wondering how cynical to be about this process whereby, as you put it, respectability is bought. I would be surprised if anyone involved in the process sees it in those terms. I suspect they see themselves, these wealthy scions of, of, of ex-Soviet oligarchical families, they see themselves as having important things to say. And it turns out that they have the means with which to express them. And then there are other people in the industry who are very happy to provide them with the facilities with which they can express themselves. But in practice, what you do end up with is very wealthy children of politically connected oligarchic families who end up occupying you know, quite prominent positions in publishing houses, in you know, the artistic collecting world, uh, in, in um, music, the music industry or whatever, which definitely gives them a position in society that they wouldn't have if they were just you know, the sort of son or daughter of a president or an oligarch from somewhere. And that is exercising soft power, isn't it? Yes, it is a form of soft power. I suppose there's always the interesting question, and I think, I think it's a question that isn't answered because I'm not sure that that in a way it's it's an either or, but on whose behalf is this soft power being exercised? Is the soft power just being exercised on behalf of the ruling family or the politically connected family, in this case the Aliyevs, or is it being exercised on behalf of the country? But in practice, what it means is that you do end up with a class of people, whether they're involved in you know sporting events being staged in Baku or musical or cultural events being staged in Baku or whether they have been recipients of generous hospitality from very well connected members of the Azeri elite you know they do end up being reluctant to bite the hand that feeds them and yes it, the elite in Azerbaijan is extremely small you know we're talking about a, a few dozen people and they have been extremely uh, skillful in how they've been leveraging their wealth in order to insert themselves, particularly into British society, but not only. I mean, they've also been doing this in, in other European countries and to a certain extent in Washington. I've done a couple of stories like this now, and, and one common thread that's, that seems to run through any story about international corruption, there always seems to be a British element to it. Am I, am I just being unfair to Britain here, or, or is Britain particularly good at attracting these sort of very interesting people with their interesting cash? Britain plays a unique role in the global economy as a sort of offshore centre offering offshore services of a far greater variety than any other place. It also offer, it occupies a unique role in the global, global criminal economy because it, those same services are available not just to reputable businesses but also to anyone willing to pay them. You might have to pay a little bit more if you're a criminal but the, the same services are available essentially if you're prepared to, to stump up the fees. And what London in particular, and Britain more broadly, is able to offer is an unrivaled breadth of services. You know, this is a place that will move your money, invest your money, protect your money, hide your money, help you spend your money, um, welcome you with open arms into its establishment in a way that no other country will. And crucially, the big competitive advantage that the UK has over the United States, which is its real only other competitor in terms of financial services, is that we don't have the FBI in Britain. 
So your money is safe here. It's very, very, very unlikely to be investigated. It's not to say it's impossible for it to happen, but it's vanishingly unlikely for it to be investigated in Britain. Where are the checks and balances? Because I'm sure the city law firms and the banks and the financial institutions that, that, that take on money and, and, and help help it find a home in the UK uh, would say, well, no, we, we, we do diligent and proper persons checks with, uh, with, with every client that we have, especially the high value ones, which is presumably how the Aliyevs were able to build a $600 million property empire in central London. Obviously, when it comes to the top end financial companies, companies, you know, the really big institutions that operate in more than one country and are reliant on using the US dollar for most of their transactions. They obviously have to abide by the rules set by the Department of Justice in the US because they can be prosecuted in the US. At the very top end of the market, they are as subject to US regulations as any US institution is. But when you get further down the food chain into the sort of legal and accountancy world where there are companies that, that only operate in the UK, then the situation is much murkier. Yes, there are strict rules in the UK about complying with anti-money laundering regulations and with not moving dirty money, but those laws aren't really enforced in any meaningful sense, or certainly only in a very sporadic sense if they are at all. And this in practice means that they are voluntary. If you are a diligent and moral person, then you will have very strict Uh, due diligence processes which prevent this money entering your firm or moving through your firm. But if you're not, then you won't have those processes and you won't really pay any price for not having them. So it ends up as essentially a voluntary tax on the goodies, which isn't in any way imposed on the baddies. But what this suggests to me is not necessarily a lack of resources, but a lack of political will to tackle this properly. Because if there was political will, there'd be more resources to tackle it. And it just seems as if there isn't anyone policing this sector anywhere near as effectively as they should, which has to be down to our legislators. It has to be down to some kind of accumulative policy, if it, whether or not it's written down, that if we don't ask too many questions, then, hey, the City of London gets richer, it underwrites the British economy, so we can't complain too much. It's a really complicated and important question, which goes back decades, really, to find its origins. When Britain was looking for its post-imperial role, it established itself, or the City of London established itself, as this offshore centre, a place where you could use the US dollar uh, without the checks imposed by the US authorities, and therefore more profitably. And ever since, there has been a concern that if the City of London is regulated too tightly, then that business and this sort of golden goose will fly away and we'll end up, you know, all the poorer as a result. But exactly who is to blame for the failure to regulate is a is a really complicated one and which people involved in the system become very frustrated by. Obviously, at its core, this is a political issue, successive Prime Ministers, Home Secretaries, Business Secretaries and so on have failed to adequately resource the enforcement bodies and to and to make them do the job they're supposed to do. To what extent should UK citizens care about this? If people want to bring their money to this country and they want to spend it in this country, then to what extent is that, well, happy days? We're not going to ask too many questions because every regime around the world has got its, its, uh, its fingers in slightly dodgy pies. Yeah, I mean, that has been the philosophy of previous governments that, you know, if the money wants to come here and pay taxes, which will pay for us to have schools and roads and hospitals, then, you know, bring it on. But 
I think that has been an extremely short-sighted policy. The money is being stolen from countries where it is desperately needed, um, and that leads to those countries essentially collapsing. This is what's happened to large parts of northern Nigeria, obviously to eastern Ukraine, to other places that have become so corrupt that they know that they're failed states. Just look at what happened in Afghanistan. Or failing that, some regimes have been able to weaponize their control of these money flows. Russia obviously is the most dramatic example, but China also does it to a certain extent in order to buy influence and corrupt politics overseas. You know, what you are creating with corruption is something that undermines the legitimacy of democracy everywhere. So though in the short term you are making profits for you know UK PLC, in the long term you're essentially empowering Britain's enemies to to become stronger and to work against us. You know, if we had turned away, you know, the Rosneft IPO from the London Stock Exchange or or prevented oligarchs from settling their disputes in London, then the oligarchs would not have become so powerful. The Kremlin would not have become so rich. And who knows, maybe the invasion of Ukraine wouldn't have happened in the first place. Oliver Bullough, author of Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals. My thanks to him. And my thanks also to Miranda and Ilya, whose investigation into the Aliyev family can be found on the OCCRP website. Just search OCCRP Aliyev. The article's full title is Azerbaijan's Ruling Aliyev Family and Their Associates Acquired Dozens of Prime London Properties Worth Nearly $700 Million. We tried to make contact with the Aliyev family so we could put the points raised in this podcast to them, but they didn't respond to any of our emails. Dirty Deeds, Tales of Global Crime and Corruption was produced by Lindsay Riley, with research by Phoebe Adler-Ryan and Ria Musa at Rethink Audio. The series is a little gem production for the OCCRP. We'll be back with more episodes, giving you an insight into the adventures of journalists who work on stories of international crime and corruption. My name is Nick Wallace. Goodbye. Goodbye.